for joining me on this the first session of dear mr potter our harry potter seminar i see you all gathered here on twitter in the youtube chat room you guys are amazing thank you so much for showing up to this thing i cannot wait to get started i was excited about doing harry potter before the book was ever selected by the exhaustive voting selection process that we underwent but now having read it again having dipped back into this world for the first time in several years i'm so excited to pick this book apart and to really find the strength within it it's a singular, magical piece of work. And we're going to explore it together over the course of the next eight weeks, the next nine sessions. There will be that extra bonus session tacked on at the end where I can talk about the film, about which I am somewhat less enthusiastic, but that is a discussion for another time. Before we get into it tonight, I have to thank from the bottom of my heart our generous, amazing, valiant Patreon supporters who stopped by patreon.com slash storywonk and pledged a dollar a month or whatever they could afford to allow us to do this crazy thing. Seriously, without your support, guys, I wouldn't be able to be sitting here right now doing this. I would have to be, you know, earning money at a real job. And that would be much less fun, I hope, for all of us. You can, I should say, if you're watching this live, ask questions at any point in the YouTube chat, if you're watching this live on the YouTube page, or on Twitter using the hashtag SWDMP, that is for Storywonk, Dear Mr. Potter. I said on Twitter last week that I liked the hashtag SWDMP because it was pronounced Swadomp, which uh, sounds like a spell, and I think that's awesome. The wonderful Carla spoke up on Twitter and said, how would Hermione pronounce it? And that led to this whole schism. So you can swadomp, you can swadomp. It's entirely up to you. I may have to make, I don't know, Team Swadomp, Team Swadomp t-shirts. It's your call, really. If tweeting isn't your thing, allow me to mute the stream that is playing here. It's been a few weeks since I've done this and it's all fallen apart. Oh, you may also note, by the way, if you were here for the Outlander seminar that I have rearranged the, uh, the set here, the studio. So everything's a little bit different. So if there are some technical glitches tonight, don't worry, we'll, uh, we'll get them ironed out for next week. If, as I was saying, tweeting isn't your thing, or you would rather join the conversation after the fact, then you can email me at any point in the next week or next month, next year at podcast at storywonk.com, or you can stop by the Storywonk forum, forum.storywonk.com, where you can join the conversation that's always alive and thriving there. We have a lot of material to get through tonight, surprisingly. <laughs> Who would have guessed that I would overload my schedule right here in week one? Um, but before we get into this remarkable singular book, we have to set the stage. We have to lay down some guiding principles. We have to, in effect, talk about what we're not going to talk about. Because this kind of analysis, particularly when it's applied to a book this popular, a book that means this much, is fraught with perils. We could spend the next eight weeks, the next 16 weeks, talking about the effect of Harry Potter. It's, it's enormous gravitational influence on popular culture over the last 10 years. We could talk about how much it has meant to so many. We could talk about the ways that it it really prepared us for and in some ways led to the young adult revolution. This, this whole new segment of the marketplace that has just opened up, that has just blossomed and is accessible to more people than anyone could ever have thought. We could talk about all that. We're not going to. That's not why we're here. I'm not going to defend Harry Potter to you. I'm not going to tell you though I'm sure it would be unnecessary, why it is an exceptional book. I'm not going to tell you why it is worthy of our attention. I'm not going to tell you 
that we should take children's literature seriously. I'm going to take all of those things as a given. If you're unsure of any of those points, then by all means, email me. By all means, raise it in the comments, raise it in the questions, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try and address it. But we have to take that stuff as read so that we can get to the real reason that we're all here, which is this crazy, wonderful, magical book. I should say, too, that I'm not going to police spoilers particularly carefully. I feel as though Harry Potter, as a, as a whole story, the entire span of the series, is pretty much common knowledge right now. It's very difficult to stroll through the internet without tripping over some spoiler or another. So I'm not going to be too attentive to that. I am going to take the same line that I took during the Outlander seminar, which is we are concerning ourselves with this book and this book alone. Yes, there are sequels. Yes, there is an adaptation out there, at least one. But we are going to limit ourselves to this text because only by doing that can we give this text the, the rich kind of attention that it deserves, that it clearly merits. When this book was created, this book was all that there was, regardless of what J.K. Rowling might tell you she had in mind. Uh, so we're going to limit ourselves to discussion of this book, and we're going to limit ourselves to discussion of this book in a roughly chronological order. I'm not going to do too much flash forwarding. I'm not going to say when we arrive at chapter three, well, of course, this particular detail is explained in chapter seven because we'll explain it when we get to it. The point of chapter three is to be chapter three. So this way we get to enjoy it. We get to appreciate our time here in this book. And I'm realizing now that I had inadvertently scrolled down in my Twitter window. Oh, and I didn't see you all there. Hey guys, thank you so much for hanging out. <laughs> oh, and we're already asking questions about uh, comparisons between Harry Potter and Outlander. Yes, there will be some. There will be some. Um, yes, yes, yes. All right. Let me see. Have I, have I covered all of the preamble? Oh, I haven't. There's one more thing that I wanted to pull out, which is more a point of general literary criticism. This is a space for discussion. This is a space for the expression and the exploration of ideas. Literature in general, and this book in particular, <laughs> it is not a puzzle to be solved. There isn't a definitive answer out there. There isn't a key that will unlock the full rich meaning and we will search around until we find it. It is a variable thing. It is a thing in a constant state of flux. You imbue this book with meaning. You imbue it with your experience and memory and understanding and perspective. You bring it to life in a very unique way. And I bring it to life in my unique way. <laughs> Everyone here with us brings it to life in their own way. It doesn't matter what J.K. Rowling says. It doesn't matter what I say. If you see something and it's supported by the text and it isn't you know, contradicted within the pages of this great work, then it's there. It's a valid interpretation. And if there's another valid interpretation that conflicts with that, then very well, we have conflict. We are legion. We contain multitudes. We're here to explore this book and to celebrate it, not to pin it down into one tight, regulated meaning. Related to, I guess, those two points, J.K. Rowling has talked extensively and, and wonderfully. I'm a big fan, <laughs> perhaps a very needless thing to say. Uh, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of J.K. Rowling, you guys. Um, and I love the way that she talks about her work, and I love the way that she approaches her work. I host during the week a podcast called The Journeyman Writer, where three times a week I sit down and I talk about the art and the craft of writing. And J.K. Rowling is one of the saints of, of that kind of approach to storytelling, to novel writing, because she does the work. She puts the work first. And that's a remarkable thing. 
She has, though, over the last few years, talked extensively about these books. She has offered additional information. She's offered additional perspectives on some of the information that we get in the book. I want to kind of disavow that. Partly because her perspective is simply one perspective, and while valid, it is not exhaustive. She doesn't offer the answer that will unlock this book any more than I do or any more than you do or any more than any critic does. But also, I really do want to try and create a space for exploration here. I want to try and open up conversation as much as possible rather than shut it down. You guys can, you know, talk about this. We, we can arrive at our own conclusions in due course. Of course we will. That's an inevitable part of the discussion process. But particularly during the live part of these seminars, I want to open up possibilities. I want to, my explicit uh, stated intent is to provoke you into thinking about this book in a way you never have before, whether it's your first time through Harry Potter or your hundredth time through Harry Potter. I want to, I want to explore some of these rich, wonderful ideas. And I want to begin, I'll get to some questions in a moment. There's one more kind of preparatory thing that I want to get through. And it's kind of a big idea, but I really think that it's important to frame our understanding of this kind of fiction in general, and this book in particular, with reference to probably the greatest fantasy author of all time. Um, in his 1947 essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien offered three reasons why fairy stories, and, and while we may not apply the term fairy stories to Harry Potter, we can be fairly certain that Tolkien would have done. He gives us three reasons why fairy stories are important. The first of these three is recovery. The recovery of an innocent perspective, a clarity, the ability to see things in stories with wonder and amazement, and more importantly, to carry some measure of that awe, that wonder, back with us into the real world. Fantasy, fairy stories, rejuvenate our capacity for awe. They refill that well of, of amazement that we can expand at the, the visions that the world around us offers. The second thing that fairy stories can do is to show us things beyond the possible, merely to show us marvels and impossibilities that we cannot ever see within the real mundane world. Try as you might, guys, you're never going to see a dragon in real life. It's just not going to happen. You're never going to see a centaur in real life, nor, I hesitate to say, cast a spell with a magic wand. Why, though, should we be limited by the mundane? As Tolkien says in his essay, this, this perfect analogy that he draws, why shouldn't the prisoner dream of things beyond bars and wardens? Just because you are constrained doesn't mean that your imagination must be. There is a virtue to the exercise of that imagination. Thirdly, of course, he tells us, and, and this, is, this is such a simple and pure and profoundly unfashionable perspective, I feel, Fairy stories offer us consolation. They reassure us that the world makes sense, that good will triumph, that evil will be defeated, that love will conquer all, oftentimes at a cost, but it will conquer all nonetheless. That quality of consolation really stands at odds with our modern world of, of cheap cynicism and mockery and, and, and hipsterism. There's no space for that in Tolkien's philosophy, nor in mine, nor, I hope, in yours. And let me tell you, there certainly isn't space for that in Harry Potter. That is, in a sense, the framework 
that I want to set in place for us to to uh, to facilitate our exploration of this. I want to understand this book through those three metrics. I want to allow for this book to provoke in us those three responses simultaneously and separately, I'm sure. But lastly, and this perhaps this perhaps is is the single most important reason why Harry Potter was the success, is the success that it is. And I don't mean the commercial success. I mean success in the narrative sense. This is the reason that Harry Potter reached as many people, touched as many people, changed as many people as it did. Tolkien says in his essay, allow me to quote directly here, quote, it is at any rate essential to a genuine fairy story as distinct from the employment of this form for lesser or debased purposes that it should be presented as true. Since the fairy story deals with marvels, it cannot tolerate any frame or machinery suggesting that the whole framework in which they occur is a figment or an illusion. That is to say, if I may paraphrase the great professor, when you're writing a fairy story, you have to play it straight. You have to deliver it with sincerity, with conviction. You can't wink at the reader. You can't, <laughs> as is so common these days, offer a wry aside or an adult joke that will sail over the heads of the children in the audience but be caught by the adults at the back. Now, J.K. Rowling, her great virtue, her great strength, and a great example of the integrity that I genuinely think compels her to continue to write even now, when she approaches Harry Potter, when she approaches all of the books in the series, she does so with complete dedication, with complete integrity. And that is what, I was going to say fuels, but I feel that that's the wrong metaphor. That is what buoys this story. That is what holds it aloft. Buoys, I should say, I guess, for our American listeners. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of transatlanticism in this. I'm sure that my, uh, my Britishisms will come out through the course of the seminar. It's going to be a lot of fun. The basic truth is that Harry Potter is magical. It is transportive. It is magical in a sense because the real world is magical and it's reflective of that. It's magical too because our imaginations are magical and it's reflective of that. Harry Potter teaches us, it consoles us, it shows us wonders and vitally equips us to better appreciate the wonders in our everyday lives. That's true, as I said, of all great fiction. It's particularly true of Harry Potter. So let's get into it, shall we? With no more preamble, let me rearrange my screens here. <laughs> the technical setup that I have here behind the scenes, you would not believe. I should, do a, I should do a video where you guys can see this. All right, let me see what we have here. Let's see what brilliance we have. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes, uh, Chris, in, uh, <laughs> Chris in the YouTube chat. Nice to have you with us, Chris. Thanks for joining us. I thought there was a fourth token metric of fairy stories. Fantasy, the sheer appeal of traveling to the realm of magic. Yes, that is something that he expanded from on fairy stories uh, that he talked about, I believe, in letters with C.S. Lewis, certainly, and probably with, with a few others, too. Um, yes, that, that's, a, a, that's kind of a hybrid of this idea of restoration of wonder, this ability to be awestruck by things, uh, and also the idea that, that fantasy allows us to engage with things that are strictly impossible. Why should the caged man dream only of, cage, uh, only of bars and wardens? Um, Margaret says, the characters in this book are richly drawn, though I feel the Dursleys are a bit caricatured. Oh, and I Heart Weasleys came right back and said, I believe that was intentional. I am inclined to agree. We will talk a little about the depth of that characterization and the way that it's portrayed. And also the change that occurs even within the pages of this book, 
We'll talk a little about that tonight, but we'll particularly talk about it right at the beginning of next week. Um, <laughs> oh, Good Ruckus Art Brigade, brilliantly named Good Ruckus Art Brigade on Twitter, says magic, sincerity, and the healing powers of wonder. Yes, yes. All right, guys. <laughs> I think that we're on the same page. Oh, you guys are so smart. <laughs> All right. Oh, and let me say, too, if this is your first time through the seminar, we will, in about four weeks, I'll present the next shortlist, and you guys will pick the next book that we'll cover after we're done with Harry Potter. Um, I don't think I'm, you know, speaking out of school when I say that, yes, we will probably do the next Harry Potter book at some point in the future. We won't do it next. I want to space these things out. Uh, we will at some point return to the second Outlander book, Dragonfly and Amber, picking up from our first seminar series. We probably won't do that next either. Uh, I'll present a short list of six, seven, eight books, and you guys can pick. And if there's a book that you would really like me to talk about, if there's a book that you would like to dive into and study to this kind of exhaustive detail, then by all means, get in touch and, and make your recommendation. I would love to have more ideas. Although the list we've got for next time looks pretty good. Let me tell you, there are, there are dozens. I have a long list just stashed away on a file on my computer. Dozens of books that I would love to cover, that I would love to give this kind of exhaustive treatment to. So with that, <laughs> and Melissa says, for those of you who survived the Outlander class, I just hope no one gets strapped in this book. I couldn't take that again. Yes, no strapping in this book and no talk of Leary. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. All right. Let's get right into it. Let me uh, shuffle this stuff around because we are going to begin with, well, where else should we begin? But with the very first page of this remarkable book. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. They were the last people you'd expect to be involved in anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. Mr. Dursley was the director of a firm called Grunnings, which made drills. He was a big, beefy man with hardly any neck, although he did have a very large moustache. Mrs. Dursley was thin and blonde, and had nearly twice the usual amount of neck, which came in very useful as she spent so much of her time craning over garden fences, spying on the neighbors. The Dursleys had a small son called Dudley, and in their opinion, there was no finer boy anywhere." The Dursleys had everything they wanted, but they also had a secret, and their greatest fear was that someone would discover it. They didn't think that they could bear it if anyone found out about the Potters. Mrs. Potter was Mrs. Dursley's sister, but they hadn't met for several years. In fact, Mrs. Dursley pretended she didn't have a sister, because her sister and her good-for-nothing husband were as undursleyish as it was possible to be. The Dursleys shuddered to think what the neighbors would say if the Potters arrived in the street. The Dursleys knew that the Potters had a small son, too, but they had never even seen him. This boy was another good reason for keeping the Potters away. They didn't want Dudley mixing with a child like that. When Mr. and Mrs. Dursley woke up on the dull, grey Tuesday our story starts, there was nothing about the cloudy sky outside to suggest that strange and mysterious things would soon be happening all over the country. Mr. Dursley hummed as he picked out his most boring tie for work, and Mrs. Dursley gossiped away happily as she wrestled a screaming Dudley into his high chair. None of them noticed a large, tawny owl flutter past the window. I love that opening. <laughs> I love how British and how prosaic and yet how laden with doom that opening 
is. We're going to have a conversation. And I don't feel that it's a conversation that we will be able to properly conclude until we are done entirely with this book. But we are going to have a conversation about whose story this is. We're going to have a conversation about why we begin at this point. But this page, this passage, definitely introduces what Lonnie and I refer to as the Jaws music. This is, even here in this, this depiction of suburban mundanity, we have this wonderful sense of doom. And we'll see exactly how that doom is escalated through the first part of the book as we move forward. Notice how completely we are rooted in the mundane world. And I say that with a certain, I don't know, a certain sense of my own privileged perspective, perhaps, because I'm well aware that to an American audience, to a global audience, this may well seem whimsical, may well seem anachronistic, may well seem, I don't know, willfully British. But to me, this absolutely reads as a naturalistic scene of suburban England. This, see, this reads as the most mundane version of, of this kind of, of domestic life. This is the normal world, and it's presented without a flourish. It sets up this expectation that we will move on to subvert, and we'll subvert it with the appearance of a wizard. So let me ask you this. This opening, does it remind you of anything? <laughs> does it remind you of anyone that I may have already mentioned within the bounds of this very seminar? Well, let's compare it to a different first page. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole, and that means comfort. And I shall skip ahead to the third paragraph here. This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they had never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is the story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost the neighbor's respect, but he gained... Well, you will see whether he gained anything in the end. The beginning, of course, to J.R.R. Tolkien's Hobbit, which is remarkably, strikingly similar, albeit with some very stark contrasts. But even therein, the point of contrast, I think, is profound. Here we see the mundane world, safe peaceful, respectable, about to be interrupted by the appearance of a great and powerful wizard on urgent business. And it's one thing for these two books to begin in similar ways. It's one thing for this connection to be superficial. But they're addressing an absolutely key theme in very different ways. In The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins is the son of Bungo Baggins, the most staid and traditional and predictable hobbit in all of society, and Belladonna Took, the wild adventuress who represents excitement and disruption. In one person, we have the two sides of J.K. Rowling's world here. We have the mundane, the muggle, in Bungo Baggins, and we have the magical, 
the romantic, the fantastic in Belladonna Tuck. Now, in Tolkien's book, those two sides are set in conflict with each other, and are, that conflict is never allowed to resolve. Bilbo's compromise between the two halves of his character really remains in suspension throughout the arc of the book and throughout the arc of The Lord of the Rings. He never truly finds a resting place, but is complete because he never finds a resting place, because he never comes down on one side or the other. That, though is the extent, the full extent to which Tolkien discusses this central theme. In Harry Potter, this theme is everywhere. The contrast between the muggle world and the magical world goes far beyond a simple structural device. It goes far beyond the superficial theme of, of outsiderhood, you know, <laughs> of, of the masquerade, of the, the supernatural being excluded from mundane society and being, I should say, very glad to be excluded. No, it goes far beyond that. We're going to delve into not just the ways in which the muggle world and the magical world interact and, and contrast and complement each other, but we are going to look at that fundamental division at the heart of Harry Potter himself, because while he doesn't carry this, this sense of the mundane world in him innately, that's his perspective. Throughout this first book in particular, people are going to be explaining the magical world to Harry because he doesn't know, because he's representative of the mundane world. The comparisons between the two, though, go even further than the, the simple thematic stuff. Note the playful pluralization here of Bagginses and the equally playful Undursley-ish in J.K. Rowling's excerpt. Note, too, the strong narrative voice that's present here that fades into this more traditional third-person perspective as the story moves on, though... I guess less so in the case of The Hobbit. There's a very marked moment, and we'll talk about it this evening. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about the moment when the narrative voice shifts in Harry Potter, because my God, it's wonderful. There is also, <laughs> we should, I should take the time to say, lest I be called out on it. Uh, there is also one enormous contrast here, which is that Bilbo Baggins is our hero, and Vernon Dursley is absolutely, resolutely not. Let me cancel that off of my screen here. Hello, I'm back. So... We move at this point through the first chapter. We are following Mr. Dursley, and we are getting hints, we're getting allusions, we're getting references, we're getting veiled suggestions of what is to come. There's a certain dramatic irony here that is, you might say, metatextual irony, but it is the kind of metatextual irony that listeners to fairy tales would have had while sitting around the campfire 600 years ago. We're primed to know that something is afoot, to know that things are not going to work out well for Vernon Dursley and his family, because we know the name of the story. <laughs> we know that the story is not called Vernon Dursley and his Perfectly Ordinary Tuesday. We've had the reference to Harry. We know that something is coming. And as he moves through this wonderfully escalating series of encounters, we feel that tension rise, even as he seems purposefully to deny it. And I would note too, you know, J.K. Rowling, I think of all the modern YA authors, J.K. Rowling probably gets more respect than most, but by God, she doesn't get what's due to her. She really doesn't. She is an exceptional writer. Look at the way 
that these interactions are crafted to build the sense of tension, this, this brooding sense of threat through the first half, I guess, of the first chapter. First, we have the owl flying past the window, completely unseen. Then we have the cat reading the map at the end of Privet Drive. This this glimpse that when he looks again seems to have been mistaken. Then we have a second glimpse that is actually confirmed of the cloaked figures by the road. Then he overhears the reference to Harry at lunch. And then we have this physical interaction with the old man in the violet cloak who gives us, who goes so far as to give us two valuable pieces of vocabulary and, and what provocative and engaging pieces of vocabulary they are you-know-who, and muggles. This arc carries us all the way to the end of the day, when the evidence of strange things afoot is, is so much that Vernon has to do the unthinkable and actually ask his wife about Harry's mother, he's obviously aware that something is wrong, he knows that something is coming, but even he, constrained as he is by his role, even he can't bring himself to verbalize his observation. He can't say that he's worried about something. He can't even tell his wife what he's seen because that would that would poke a hole in their world. That would change this, this carefully constructed artifice. That would end their suburban mundanity. So he says nothing. When he finally falls asleep, after convincing himself that everything will remain the way it is, we move out into the street and we meet Albus Dumbledore. I am going to call that up on the slide in just a minute, but first I want to drop into your comments here. I just catch this flicker of Twitter at the corner of my eye. You guys are incredible. Um, oh, wow. And, and, uh, and YouTube has just updated to, I will not, I'm afraid, be able to get to all of your uh, questions and comments because you guys are amazing. <laughs> Chris says Bilbo's a mudblood. You know, that's exactly the comparison, Chris. You're, you're exactly right. Um, okay, we'll, we'll talk about that too in due course. Um, Bilbo was in some ways a very apt comparison for, for some of the characters that we'll see here. Yes. <laughs> uh, Ariane puts her finger right on it. I love this observation. Vernon seems very observant for someone portrayed to be so dumb. And this is really the first indication. It, it's that moment when he tries as slyly as possible to question his wife about Harry's mother. And and, and kind of, he, he approaches it delicately and then backs off immediately and tries to convince himself that there's actually nothing wrong at all. This is part, I think, of the characterization of the Dursleys that I said I would address back at the beginning of the seminar. Because I wonder how much of this is consciously constructed. I wonder how much of this is deliberate artifice. I wonder to what extent these caricatures are caricatures because they choose to be. We'll see this more clearly when the letters begin to arrive and Vernon begins to lose his mind. He, he really, he, he starts to tumble down, you know, a, a very steep slope leading to a very bad place through that section of the book. And it is because his mind is so constrained, so pinned to the mundane world that he can't adapt. He can't change. He keeps trying the same approaches over and over and over again. And I mean, on the one hand, of course, that's a masterful stroke of, of simple comedy. You know, it, it's funny to think of this guy trying these increasingly outlandish means of keeping the letters out of his home, even after they show up rolled up inside of little eggs. But on the other hand, it also depicts a man who is profoundly constrained in his thinking. It depicts a family that is clinging to this domestic life 
by their fingernails. And when the stakes are that high, I think some of their behavior starts to make a little more sense. They start to seem to me at least more like three-dimensional people. I should say, I am not going to defend everything in this book. There are things in this book that I'm not a huge fan of. We'll get to one of those tonight. <laughs> All right, let me see what else we have here. Yes, ER Lamp says it's a bit early for this, but I wonder how Petunia reacted to learning that Lily had died. We know she screamed when she saw Harry. Yes, her feelings about her sister, all informed. All informed. We are told by the narrator how she feels about her sister. We don't get that firsthand emotional response because Harry wouldn't have seen a glimpse of that firsthand emotional response. And, you know, let's not go too far down this road. The Dursleys are caricatures. They are, you know, monstrous ogre. They are they are exactly in that fairy tale tradition of, of odious, oppressive step-parents. Let's not try and excuse that too much with, you know, a modern meeting that's all gentle and huggy. No, they're, they're, they're jerks. That's absolutely true. But at the same time, I think that you can see a motivation that underlies that, that, that kind of illuminates something, for me at least, of their character. Oh, yeah, we're getting a few people here saying that there's a, there's a great deal of denial here. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> oh, and Usagi says, I never thought of it when I first read it, but now I wonder who is narrating and to whom. This is a great question, and this is always a question, of course, that Tolkien treats very seriously. Um, this question of, of fictionality within his works, for example, that account that I gave you, that first page of The Hobbit, is explicitly within the text written by Bilbo. That is his personal account, as you'll remember if you've seen the recent movies and the framing device thereof. Who tells us this story about Harry? Well, we don't know, is the simple truth. And there are a couple of clues I don't think I want to distract us as we move through the book by, by pointing those out. I think maybe we'll, we'll ask this question again at the end and see if we come up with a compelling answer. Um, but certainly, well, we're approaching rapidly the point at which the narration shifts abruptly. And as I said earlier, it's, it's gorgeous. All right, let's take a quick look at Dumbledore's appearance here. Let me share this. I should say, too, lest you be fearful that we're already 35 minutes in and I'm only, oh God, not even halfway through the first chapter. The first chapter has a lot in it. We're going to move a little more quickly through chapters two and three. Uh, and we'll have lots of time for questions, so don't worry. Um, great. Oh, you guys. <laughs> I've missed you guys. I've missed hanging out on a Tuesday night and talking books. All right, let's do this. Here we have the appearance of Albus Dumbledore. A man appeared on the corner the cat had been watching, appeared so suddenly and silently you'd have thought he'd just popped out of the ground. The cat's tail twitched and its eyes narrowed. Nothing like this man had ever been seen on Privet Drive. He was tall, thin, and very old, judging by the silver of his hair and beard, which were both long enough to tuck into his belt. He was wearing long robes, a purple cloak that swept the ground, and high-heeled buckled boots. His blue eyes were light, bright, and sparkling behind half-moon spectacles, and his known nose excuse me, was very long and crooked, as though it had been broken at least twice. This man's name was Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore didn't seem to realize that he had just arrived in a street where everything from his name to his boots was unwelcome. He was busy rummaging in his cloak, looking for something but he did seem to realize he was being watched, because he looked up suddenly at the cat, which was still staring at him from the other side of the street. 
For some reason, the sight of the cat seemed to amuse him. He chuckled and muttered, I should have known. He found what he was looking for in his inside pocket. It seemed to be a silver cigarette lighter. He flicked it open, held it up in the air, and clicked it. The nearest street lamp went out with a little pop. He clicked it again, and the next lamp flickered into darkness. Twelve times he clicked the put-outer, until the only lights left on the whole street were two tiny pinpricks in the distance, which were the eyes of the cat watching him. If anyone looked out of their window now, even beady-eyed Mrs. Dursley, they wouldn't be able to see anything that was happening down on the pavement. Dumbledore slipped the put-outer back inside his cloak and set off down the street toward number four, where he sat down on the wall next to the cat. He didn't look at it, but after a moment, he spoke to it. Fancy seeing you here, Professor McGonagall. <laughs> Another great interest. I love that. <laughs> so a couple of things to, to, to pull out here in this description. Um, because this description, while in some ways it's exactly what you would expect, the description of the cloak and the boots and the specificity of this costume, some of these details are exactly what you would expect. And yet some of them lead us in a very different way. The two details that I would like to pull out here specifically are Dumbledore's broken nose, an indication of a kind of rambunctious physicality <laughs> that we perhaps wouldn't expect uh, to see in, in, in the uh, person of an aged wizard, and also the magical put-outer, a more mundane magical appliance you will never find. It's, it's a wonderful piece of invention because on the one hand, it is so immediately recognizable to children. I think they get a very strong and clear sense of what this mystical item is, but, but far, far more than that. It also shows a very kind of pragmatic application of magic. Not only is it a simple device with a single function, it, it functions in that way reliably. It's much more mechanical than many magical items that you'll see in classic fantasy stories. Moreover, look at the name, <laughs> the put-outer. <laughs> that is as wonderfully, as wonderfully direct and as, as uh, unpoetic, as lacking in lyricism as, as it's possible to conceive. I love that. Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall, for it is she, talk a while as she describes the magical celebration all over the country. And then she asks if you know who has actually gone. And this is the moment at which we get our sense of Dumbledore as a person. Let me move to this next slide here. It certainly seems so, said Dumbledore. We have much to be thankful for. Would you care for a lemon drop? A what? A lemon drop. that a kind of muggle sweet I'm rather fond of. No, thank you, said Professor McGonagall coldly, as though she didn't think this was the moment for lemon drops. As I say, even if you know who has gone, my dear Professor, surely a sensible person like yourself can call him by his name. All this you-know-who nonsense. For eleven years, I've been trying to persuade people to call him by his proper name. Voldemort. Professor McGonagall flinched, but Dumbledore, who was unsticking two lemon drops, seemed not to notice. It all gets so confusing if we keep saying you-know-who. I've never seen any reason to be frightened of saying Voldemort's name. I know you haven't, said Professor McGonagall, sounding half exasperated, half admiring. But you're different. Everyone knows you're the only one you know. All right, Voldemort was frightened of. 
You flatter me, said Dumbledore calmly. Voldemort had powers I will never have. Only because you're too, well, noble to use them. It's lucky it's dark. I haven't blushed so much since Madame Pomfrey told me she liked my new earmuffs. I love, I love the richness of that. I love the details of it. Although this would be the moment to point out that yes, 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 I admit it. The excerpts that I have taken are from the American version <laughs> of this book. I am taking these from the Sorcerer's Stone, not the Philosopher's Stone. I did, I did spend some time thinking about whether or not I would look at the textual differences, but honestly, none of the textual differences amount to anything at all. It doesn't matter. That Dumbledore, excuse me, at this point refers to them as lemon drops instead of sherbet lemons, except that I guess sherbet lemons would explain the stickiness a little more than lemon drops would, at least in my mind. Um, but yes, these are all taken from the American version of the book because that is the version that I have digitally. That is the version that I can use to copy these, uh, these excerpts here. But much more importantly, let's look at this amazing contrast that is evidenced here. Let's look at this richness that we, we see in Dumbledore's character. Look at this powerful mundanity, <laughs> the silliness of this bumbling, abashed wizard. The lemon drops, of course, the reference to earmuffs, his refusal to, to imbue Voldemort's name with power and mysticism, even though Professor McGonagall is clearly, you know, she hasn't invented this. This is a common thing to avoid the use of his name. And names, as we know, have enormous power in fairy stories. But Dumbledore has no truck with that. He is a very pragmatic, very straight down the line, very, honestly, mundane kind of guy. He's all lemon drops and earmuffs and Voldemort. And yet, here in this passage, we have this indication that his is a power that could rival Voldemort's, that, that could potentially exceed the mysterious Voldemort. And lest we forget, the defeat of Voldemort is such an astonishing thing that every wizard in the country, potentially every wizard in the world, is currently celebrating. All of this serves to draw our attention to the fact that the contrast between the magical and the muggle worlds are nothing like as simple and as clear as they may seem to be. There's a wizard standing in a street outside a suburban house, and even he embodies both of these qualities. We'll continue to look at what else Dumbledore embodies as we move forward here. McGonagall and Dumbledore talk a while, and they give us the important information that we've been craving. Lily and James Potter are dead, but Voldemort was somehow vanquished by Harry, a little boy. Moreover, Harry is going to be delivered into the care of the Dursleys, and watch that tonal shift here. <laughs> this, is, this is a no-cut. I only picked this up today as I was reading it. Watch the tonal shift as we move from talking about the death of Lily and James to talking about delivering Harry into the care of the Dursleys. Because Professor McGonagall almost seems more horrified by the prospect of Harry living this quiet suburban life than she is by the fate of his parents. Until, that is, Dumbledore quiets her concerns by talking about the odious fame the boy would have to endure. Nothing in this scene feels quite right. Nothing here feels concrete, <laughs> particularly from Dumbledore. I don't get the sense that Dumbledore 
simply can be trusted. Or at least let me let me say this. He can be trusted because everything that he's saying is true. Also, everything that he's saying is incomplete. Nothing he's saying is comprehensive here. And that, I think, is entirely purposeful. That, I think, is entirely deliberate. We're seeing this. We're being given this very clear sense of the otherworldly in this scene. And I, I do adore it. Hagrid arrives on Sirius Black's motorcycle, a small detail that <laughs> stands out to those of you who have read the, uh, the other books here. And we are introduced to Harry's scar. Let's see this last, this last uh, slide here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is that where, whispered Professor McGonagall. Yes, said Dumbledore. He'll have that scar forever. Couldn't you do something about it, Dumbledore? Well, even if I could, I wouldn't. Scars can come in handy. I have one myself above my left knee that is a perfect map of the London underground. I'll give him here, Hagrid. We better get this over with. Dumbledore took Harry in his arms and turned toward the Dursley's house. Could I... could I say goodbye to him, sir? asked Hagrid. He bent his great shaggy head over Harry and gave him what must have been a very scratchy, whiskery kiss. Then suddenly, Hagrid let out a howl like a wounded dog. Shh, hissed Professor McGonagall. You'll wake the muggles. Sorry, sobbed Hagrid, taking out a large spotted handkerchief and burying his face in it. But I I can't stand it. Lily and James is dead. (laughs) Poor little Harry off to live with muggles. Yes, yes. Oh, excuse me, that's Professor McGonagall. I (laughs) slipped into the wrong voice. Yes, yes, it's all very sad, but get a grip on yourself, Hagrid, or we'll be found. Professor McGonagall whispered, patting Hagrid gingerly on the arm as Dumbledore stepped over the low garden wall and walked to the front door. He laid Harry gently on the doorstep, took a letter out of his cloak, tucked it inside Harry's blankets, and then came back to the other two. For a full minute, the three of them stood and looked at the little bundle. Hagrid's shoulders shook. Professor McGonagall blinked furiously, and the twinkling light that usually shone from Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have gone out. Well, said Dumbledore finally, that's that. We've no business staying here. We may as well go and join the celebrations. Let me ask, before I move into my first discussion here, let me let me prompt <laughs> your uh, <laughs> your responses here. What does Dumbledore mean with that last line? When he says, that's that, we've no business staying here, we may as well go and join the celebrations. Is that as simple, as tired, as potentially defeated as it seems on the surface? Or is there something more to that? What, what, what do you guys think? I'll let you reply to that while I pick up... God, this is an outstanding part. The last part of that penultimate paragraph there. For a full minute, three of them stood and looked at the little bundle. Hagrid's shoulders shook. Professor McGonagall blinked furiously. And the twinkling light that usually shone from Dumbledore's eyes seemed to have gone out. I love that beat. Hagrid, all emotional. McGonagall, cold and logical. And Dumbledore, uniting the two with purpose and with authority. Does that sound at all familiar? <laughs> that is, that's a dynamic that we're going to see again in this book. That is, of course, the dynamic that we're going to see between Harry, Hermione, and Ron. But more than that, this is one of the classical character constructions. What we're seeing here is the combination of logos, pathos, and ethos. Ethos, or, or 
ethical appeal. We're, we're going back to the ancient Greeks here. We're going back to the, the narrative constructions that, that were first understood by, by Aristotle and his students. Ethos is the, the appeal of ethics. It is the convincing. It is the, the virtue of virtue, the virtue of nobility, of heroism, of authority. Pathos is the appeal of the emotional. That's where we get, you know, the pathos itself as a word, and of course, pathetic and, and, and all the words that derive from that. That's the engagement of the emotions. Logos is the engagement of reason, the engagement of logic and the, the persuasion there too. We can also think of this, of course, in, in Freudian terms, though I like this construction less because it, it, it's more hierarchical. Um, in Freudian terms, we would think of this as, as the id, the, the, the force of emotion and desire, the superego being the core of, of cold logic and rationality, and the ego that unites and synthesizes the two. If you're a Star Trek fan, <laughs> this is the classic construction that lies at the heart of the original series of Star Trek. Uh, McCoy as Pathos, this, this emotional wreck of a man. Spock as Logos, this, this logical, rational being. And Kirk as Ethos, the ego uniting the two and giving them purpose by virtue of authority. As I say, we see this very clearly here. We're going to see it again in Harry, Hermione, and Ron. And let's just keep our eyes peeled for it, for this particular construction, as we move forward through the book. This is a, uh, this is a way of having characters interact and function together as a unified whole, of which J.K. Rowling is particularly fond. And, and when she employs it, she never does it casually. It's always purposeful. It's always important. So, so let's keep track of that as we, as we move forward. What two? Let's get to Dumbledore in just one minute. What two do we think of Harry's scar, and what do we make of this response that scars can be useful? Because Dumbledore immediately makes that suggestion that, that uh, he has a scar that maps to the London Underground, which is of course immediately trivial. It is of course immediately cartoonish. Is that deliberate? Is that what he means? My question here is. I guess in, in, in both of these questions, both from that line about the scar and then the line that concludes this, this section of the book, to what degree is Dumbledore who he seems to be? And I'm not asking for questions that come, or, or, or I'm not asking for, excuse me, answers that come from later in the book, but in your sense of this scene, in your sense of what we know of this character so far, to what degree do you think he is this bumbling, somewhat absent-minded, you know, somewhat stereotypical and cliched wizard. And to what degree is that a guise? <laughs> All right. I'll give you guys a minute to catch up with that there. <laughs> oh, my YouTube chat still isn't catching up here. Oh, the technical problems. Ooh, Lance has a great question. Where is Godric's Hollow? Hagrid said it flew over Bristol, and Little Whinging appears to be around London. It is, in fact, in Surrey, as we'll see from uh, Harry's address in, in, in the near future. So is Godric's Hollow in Wales? We'll, uh, we'll get to some of the geography here, because that, I think, is interesting. Yes. Isn't that a wonderfully evocative name, though, Godric's Hollow? Um, <laughs> obviously, you know, now that I've primed you to see the connections between J.K. Rowling and J.R.R. Tolkien... 
You're going to be seeing them everywhere. But she certainly shares his facility with evocative names. I rather love that, which is what makes things like the put outer so charmingly ungainly and direct. You know, she could absolutely have given that a a mystical pseudo-Latin name. You know, she could have given it something much more wizardly and evocative. And she chose deliberately not to because the mundanity in that moment is somehow more unexpected. I love that. Absolutely love it. My favorite word that has possibly ever been invented was invented by J.R.R. Tolkien. Invented, I guess, not in the sense of of natural language evolution and construction, but was actually coined for a fictional work. And it is the name that he gives to the cleaving sheets of ice in the north of of Arda, in in the north of of Middle-earth. This this treacherous uh, wilderness of of jagged ice flows, this, this absolute frigid hell. And it is called the Hell Karaksa, which is so perfect. It embodies everything that you need from a name, and I absolutely love it. Tolkien was was a wizard with that stuff. But uh, oh, I still have the uh, I still have the slide up. I probably shouldn't have the slide up. Thank you for the the nod there, Lance. <laughs> I'm very forgetful with that slide. I know it's because I'm just talking here in my little office, <laughs> drinking my wine. Cheers. Mm. All right. So let's also address the the structural questions here. <laughs> Brooks says, we know you will tell us if the geography is good or bad. J.K. Rowling, at least being British, has a much stronger sense of British geography. It's also much less critical than it is in Outlander, but yes. Um, good, 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 good. Oh, some great comments. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. Uh, we'll come back to this in just one minute. The last thing that I want to kind of prompt you toward is to look at the structure of the book. Is this a prologue? It's not labeled as such. This is resolutely chapter one, like it or not. There it is, numbered and everything. But does it function as the first chapter of a story? Or is it prologue material? If it is prologue material, then how does that change our understanding of where the story actually starts? If it's not prologue material, does that change our understanding of what story this is? Because you start your story where your story starts. We'll talk about the structure as we move forward into it. And we've got a little more meat to play with. <clears throat> Excuse me. We Oh, let me get to let me get to all of your comments here because you guys are fantastic. G Smith on the YouTube chat says, I don't see a bumbling wizard. Rather very intelligent with a sense of humor, but also the sense of knowing more than what is on the surface. Yes, it is that perspicacity that and and that that ambiguity to pretty much every line he has uh, that, that really caught my eye about Dumbledore, particularly not so much the first time that you read it, but I think that when you go back to it and you understand a little more of, of not just the backstory that informs these events and not just the stakes that are at play, you know, we will at some point in the future return to his casual use of Voldemort's name. And and to his, you know, purported opposition to, to veiling Voldemort's name for the last 11 years in the future. And, and we'll kind of be prompted by the book, I think, to ask questions about Dumbledore's wisdom in that regard. But certainly there's that sense that he sees more acutely than he sees more clearly. Um, great. Good, good, good. Um your lamp asks uh, answers my question with a very perceptive point. Yes, I think the question of prologue versus chapter comes down to how you define the series. Yes, Jennifer says prologue. 
Brooke says it's the first chapter because it shows how Harry's story begins. Yeah, this is part of it, though, isn't it? Because you cannot tell where a story begins until you know where the story ends, because it's only in the ending of the thing that you really know what story you were just told. So we'll, we'll revisit this. Oh, your lamp clarifies here. If it's about Harry the person, then chapter one is prologue. If it's about Harry Potter the legend, then chapter one is the first chapter. My goodness. That is very well put. That is very well put. Um, I would direct you to study the conflict here. Um, rather than subject, conflict is usually what defines the span of a given story. And I would say here that if the conflict is... <sighs> Yes, Harry versus, you know, the Muggle world. Um, Harry striving to achieve his identity, to to become the man he's going to be. If if it's a coming-of-age tale, then the first chapter is resolutely prologue because he doesn't change from that point to the start of of chapter two, which would be the first chapter of chapter one more prologue. But if the story is the conflict between Harry and Voldemort then we have to reassess. And of course, that's that's very complicated too, because we're not just talking about one book, we're talking about the whole series. So we'll, we'll revisit that in the future. Excellent. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God, you guys are being so smart. I have to scroll too far back here. Um, Pam says, since the fight was with Voldemort, Dumbledore assumes there could be a magical connection in the scar. Yes, that is what I thought, too. I think his abrupt left turn into mundanity there, um, the whole idea of the map of the London Underground, which may by all accounts be true, who knows? Um, his, his deliberate use of that to, to seem to kind of diffuse the tension in the moment... And, and certainly to avoid answering the question, why wouldn't you just heal that very conspicuous scar there, buddy? Surely that's within your power. Um, the way that he handles that question and, and, and handles it by not handling it certainly implies to me that there's something more at play here. Good, good, good. Great. Oh, and we're, all, we're already getting... <laughs> We're already getting some tension here between, yes, the muggle world and the magical world. Great. Yes. Uh, Good Ruckus Art Brigade here says, Dumbledore's one-two punch of deep thought and throwaway humor to me makes me question his motives. Yes, I think that we are... Uh... Yeah, I, I think that's an entirely... Uh... <laughs> that shows great wisdom. That shows great understanding, I think, yes. Um, all right, let us keep going because, my goodness, it's 10 o'clock already. We're already an hour into the Harry Potter seminar. Are you guys having a good time? I'm having a pretty good time, i got to tell you. Mm. We open Chapter 2 with perhaps my favorite passage in the entire reading tonight. Um, we open Chapter 2 with this abrupt and very purposeful shift in voice that I described earlier. In The Hobbit, as I said, we come from this very kind of grandiose, omniscient narration, which we know was written by Bilbo, but even within the frame of the book, feels very authored. We move through the first chapter of Harry Potter, and we're getting a similar kind of thing. The narrator is offering us perspective that doesn't necessarily come from anyone in the scene, you know? We get this sense of, of Albus Dumbledore being hated on this street from his name to his boots. Well, that doesn't come from the scene itself. It comes from the narrator simply breaking this narrative frame to tell us this 
directly. And, and that's a perfectly fine and, and valid thing to do here at the beginning of the book. What's wonderful about the shift in narrative voice in Harry Potter is that it's so well engineered and completely conspicuous. It happens right in front of you. And if you're not watching, you may not even see it happen. Let's call this up and we can break into it right here. If I can get my slide to comply. <laughs> Which I may not be able to do. Ah, here we are. All right. Oh, we have some formatting problems here. I do apologize, guys. Uh, okay. So this is right at the beginning of Chapter 2. <laughs> Nearly 10 years had passed since the Dursleys had woken up to find their nephew on the front step, but Privet Drive had hardly changed at all. The sun rose in the same tidy front gardens and lit up the brass number four on the Dursleys' front door. It crept into their living room, which was almost exactly the same as it had been on the night when Mr. Dursley had seen that fateful news report about the owls. Only the photographs on the mantelpiece really showed how much time had passed. Ten years ago, there had been lots of pictures of what looked to be a large pink beach ball wearing differently colored bonnets. But Dudley Dursley was no longer a baby, and now the photographs showed a large blonde boy riding his first bicycle on a carousel at the fair, playing a computer game with his father, being hugged and kissed by his mother. The room held no sign at all that another boy lived in the house, too. Yet Harry Potter was still there, asleep at the moment, but not for long. His Aunt Petunia was awake, and it was her shrill voice that made the first noise of the day. Up! Get up! Now! Harry woke with a start. His aunt rapped on the door again. So, this is this is luminous. This this just knocks my socks off. This is cinematic in its lightness of touch. We come in with the sunlight. This this sunrise that could be the very next morning, you know. But we're coming in and we're told that 10 years have passed and we drift through the years, through the living room all the way to the present. We have this, you know, movement through the history of these pictures, each one of which kind of gives us a a sense of familial life. You know, we have these veiled references to just how horrid Dudley is, and we'll see more of that in the very near future. But it seems, you know, somewhat idyllic, somewhat bucolic. We, we get this sense of quiet suburban life. We see a family home, a family home from which Harry Potter is resolutely excluded. We, so we move through the living room here. We move through the pictures. We move through with the sunlight. And we move through here a shift in tense. Yet Harry Potter was still there asleep at the moment. So we come from this, <laughs> we come from this very, uh, very crisp narrative voice that's very similar to the narrative voice that we saw in the first chapter. Nearly 10 years had passed since the Dursleys had woken up to find their nephew on the front step. We come through all of this grandiose storytelling, this, this grand tone and style. And we arrive right here on the bleeding edge of the present, right here in this quivering moment where the present is about to turn into the past. Yet Harry Potter was still there asleep, asleep at the moment, but not for long. His Aunt Petunia was awake and it was her shrill voice that made the first noise of the day. Up, get up now. And then we crash into our standard narrative voice for the rest of the book with very few deviations. This is just where we are in a much more traditional close third person read. Harry woke with a start. His aunt rapped on the door again. All that, 
all that lyricism, all that imagery, all that liminality has evaporated or was driven away or has coalesced, you know, pick your metaphor of choice. They have all collapsed into this point of nowness. And we're absolutely in the story. And this is it. We're here. It's done. This is the tone that we're going to keep for the rest of the book. I genuinely think it's, it's, it's just a remarkable piece of work. What do you guys think? Am I, am I overstating this? <laughs> oh, Jennifer is asking me. Oh, let me kill this slide, too. Is this still up behind me? Oh, it is. <laughs> Uh, as I said at the top of the seminar, we have just rearranged our studio. We've just we've just changed everything out here, and we haven't finished it yet. We're still putting things on the shelves behind me. As you can see, it's looking it's looking a little drab back there. Uh, we haven't sorted out the lighting, got everything fixed up just yet. But we did have this little uh, this little chalkboard here. Uh, Lonnie wrote this uh, because my daughter made her collapse uh, in fits of laughter the other day, and uh, when Lonnie was shaking her head, <laughs> our eldest daughter said, "What?" Is that too funny for you? It was cute. <laughs> Just strange glimpses into our lives here in upstate New York. All right. Um, <laughs> let me see what we have here. Yes, yes, yes. Good, good, good. Oh, and Sue says, asleep for the moment, but not for long. Portentous. Yes, of course. You know, we must always, all, the closer we get to traditional fairy stories in particular, we must always always pay close attention to images of, of waking and of sleeping. We must always pay extraordinarily close attention to those very powerful moments of transition. Moments of transition will be our big theme for next week. Uh, but you're right. We could, we could easily have lumped that in with, with this sense of, of passage between worlds. AAK, Cylon Cindy, Cylon Cindy, probably not Cylon Cindy, that would be terrible, says you can almost see the camera zooming from a godly point of view down to Harry waking. Exactly that, right? You come in through the window, you, or maybe even come down over the rooftops of the houses. This, this suburban street drenched in golden sunlight on this, this summer morning. Everything is wonderful and warm and mundane. We move in through the window. We pan past the mantle. We see all the pictures. Possibly those pictures change. Possibly the one on the left is of the baby and the one on the right is of, of, of a grown or, you know, I don't know, pubescent Dudley. <laughs> what a horrifying thought of pubescent Dudley. But a pubescent Dudley playing computer games with, with his father. And then we continue panning into the cupboard under the stairs, and there is Harry. You know, We could do that all in one fluid camera movement, and it would accomplish exactly the same thing. It's that, it's that grounding. It's that refocusing. It's that, that reframing of the narrative in front of us. It's great stuff. Pam says, this scene makes me already hate the Dursleys. No love in Harry's life. Yeah, and makes us, ah, makes us wonder about that last scene, you know? I, I, at least when I read this, think of Professor McGonagall's objection to this. And it makes me question what Dumbledore has in mind. I think it, it gives us a very different kind of rising tension. It gives us a very different kind of Jaws music, that, that threatening bassy ba-bum right under the surface of the story. You feel that there's something more at play here because who would sentence a child to this kind of life? All right. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Good. Chris says that they have that shot in the movie that shall not be named. I honestly don't recall. I 
don't have a clue how that shot's framed in the movie. Wouldn't that be interesting? Well, we'll have to look. That That's such a powerful and cinematic moment in the book. We'll have to look at the movie. The movie... <laughs> uh, damn you, Chris. I didn't want to talk about the movie until the end of the seminar session, but okay. You tricked me. The movie isn't horrible. It's not awful to watch. It's not even a terrible representation of the contents of the book. The movie fails not as a film, not as a piece of entertainment, and certainly not as a piece of kind of representative, you know, Potterana, but it fails as an adaptation. It, it fails in the endeavor, the necessary endeavor to tell its own story and, and to do so by exploiting the strengths of its own medium. Um, the movie's far too literal an adaptation of the book, and it, it's, it's so literal that... My first exposure to Harry Potter was the movie. And let me tell you, I, I, I'm not a dumb man. You know, <laughs> I've been around. I've seen a few movies. I understand stories. It is impenetrable. If you don't already know Harry Potter, if you don't already know what to expect and where this thing is going, it is impenetrable. It plays like the greatest hits of the book just put up on screen as literally as possible, which is an approach. That is a thing you can do as a filmmaker. But that is the thing that when we get to The Prisoner of Azkaban, that is the thing which is inverted. That is the thing which is is completely shifted. We really start respecting the medium. We start respecting the, the format, the frame even of of the movie screen, and that changes. Oh, that changes everything. <laughs> and without that movie, we wouldn't have had you know the huge success of things like The Hunger Games. You know, it, it really licensed. Okay, we'll come back to this. I'm going to do a whole seminar session where we go through the movie and we talk about the strengths and weaknesses because there are things when you treat it as a depiction of the book, a literal depiction of the book rather than a story in its own right. There are things that it does exceptionally well. There are things that it does just beautifully. Um, so we're going to talk about all of that. That is the last, that is session nine. That is the special Sunday session. We'll get to that in due course. I promise you. All right, let's keep going here because we have a lot left to do. Uh, the next beat that we have in our story that comes along all too soon is in fact our introduction to our protagonist here we are um an hour and 10 minutes into our seminar and i don't know how many pages into the book finally we meet our protagonist when he was dressed he went down the hall into the kitchen the table was almost hidden beneath all of dudley's birthday presents it looked as though dudley had gotten the new computer he wanted not to mention the second television and the racing bike exactly why dudley wanted a racing bike was a mystery to harry as dudley was very fat and hated exercise unless of course it involved punching somebody dudley's favorite punching bag was harry but he couldn't often catch him harry didn't look it but he was very fast perhaps it had something to do with living in a dark cupboard but Harry had always been small and skinny for his age. He looked even smaller and skinnier than he really was because all he had to wear were old clothes of Dudley's, and Dudley was about four times bigger than he was. Harry had a thin face, nobly knees, black hair, and bright green eyes. He wore round glasses held together with a lot of scotch tape because of all the times Dudley had punched him on the nose. The only thing Harry liked about his own appearance was a very thin scar on his forehead that was shaped like a bolt of lightning. He had had it for as long as he could remember, and the first question he could ever remember asking his Aunt Petunia was how he had gotten it. In the car crash when your parents died, she'd said, and don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. That was the first rule for a quiet life with the Dursleys. So a couple of quick things here. Um, this is, as I said, you know, our introduction to our 
protagonist. He's also defined even now in contrast to our, you know, immediate scene level antagonist. Harry is defined here most powerfully in, in response to Dudley. And this, this may feel a little heavy handed. You know, this is, is where the, and, and I think perhaps I'm bothered by this mostly because Dudley's a child. <laughs> And while the you know fairy tale grotesquery of his parents is one thing, it's it's something else when it's applied to a child. Now I think that as we move through this chapter and we see how absolutely vile Dudley is, this characterization seems a little more fair. He does seem to be the child who would be profoundly lazy. He does seem to be the child who would prefer not to exercise and, more importantly, of course, to be indulged in every way possible at every convenient moment. But at the same time, when this is our first introduction to Dudley, it seems a little a little critical, a little heavy-handed, perhaps. But more importantly here, we have our introduction to Harry, our protagonist, our wiry little guy here with his lightning bolt scar and little round glasses. The two things that stood out to me here, well, one of which <laughs> I only noticed, uh, I think not the last time I read it, but perhaps the time before when I, when I first read it to prepare for the seminar. I was looking at this moment and, and noticed this conspicuous reference to, to Harry being punched in the nose and was struck immediately by Dumbledore's broken nose and by the, the echo that ripples between those scenes. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that there's anything else there. I'm not sure that there's anything kind of more to draw out of that, except that I find that particularly fascinating. The most interesting piece here, though, is that the only quality he liked is this scar. And it's the liking of the scar that I find particularly evocative. It's the fact that this, the symbol of his birth, and, and you know, directly, though he doesn't yet know it, this is directly the reason that he is here with the Dursleys, this lightning bolt represents something greater to him. And it may be that it represents inherent magic. It may be that it's simply the thing that sets him apart from the Dursleys. Either way, though, it the liking of it, knowing as we do that Harry was born in, or <laughs> not born in, but but Harry's fate was forged in blood and in magical fire. That that he went through this enormous trauma and survived with this scar. That he likes that scar says something. Powerful, and if I'm completely honest, you know, a little troubling about his character. I'm, I'm, I'm disquieted by the fact that he likes the scar quite as much as he does. What do you guys make of that? Let me see here. <laughs> oh, Ariane said there would be more to, more to draw out of the nose thing if I could talk about the other books. No, by all means, Ariane, you know, we'll talk about this on the forum afterward. I just, I don't want the, the, the other books to kind of shroud our discussion of this text, you know. Let, let's open this up as much as possible. Uh, Nocturne says the scar is a mystery to him. It's past and potential. Beautifully put. I agree entirely. And Christina also brings us the very pragmatic point. Hey, it's a lightning bolt. That's cool if you're a kid. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> There's definitely something to that. Oh, and Chris says Harry's very fast, foreshadowing his sport of choice. Yes, a little form-following function there, or vice versa. Um, 
Yes, yes, yes. Oh, good, good, good. Oh, I'm, I'm scrolling back here and finding you all, <laughs> as is so often the case, preempting the points that I made. <laughs> always, always strive to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. You'll lead a much happier life. Oh, let me cancel the, uh, as evidenced by the fact that I keep forgetting to cancel that slide. Look at that. Okay. Yes, and we're having some discussion of the, uh, the films here on Twitter, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good, good, good. And Tamara says, rereading this book again reminded me of how sassy Harry is. So bold for being so mistreated. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to tell. And I hesitate only because <laughs> I'm not sure to what degree it's purposeful. There are two ways of looking at this. One is that Harry's quintessential hairiness um, is very low key through this chapter because we're supposed to, you know, almost half miss it. We're supposed to overlook it. We're supposed to see him as a victim first and only begin to recognize how, how sassy he is later. You know, I, I can't tell if that is a deliberate choice by JK Rowling or if she wanted it to be more evident and kind of whiffed on it. You know, if she kind of missed her mark just a little there, I'm not sure how to interpret it. Um, and I'm not sure that it, that it makes a huge amount of difference because either way it is there, as you say, you know, the, the one that always stands out to me is that, that when he asks to be left behind when they go to the zoo um, and he's thinking about he can watch whatever he wants on TV or maybe even have a go on Dudley's computer. And I thought, my God, Harry, are you nuts? These people have, have locked you in a closet for the last 10 years. What are they going to do if they find you screwing with Dudley's computer? So <laughs> maybe I'm reading some of my own, you know, not exceptional childhood into this. <laughs> Though don't we all? Isn't that part of it? Um, okay. So we move through the events of Dudley's birthday, which serve to emphasize two things. They serve to emphasize how cartoonishly vile Dudley is. Um, though... I mean, for me, at least, that starts to be moderated by his conscious manipulation. He's not just grotesque. He's also cruelly and specifically manipulative um, in a very self-conscious way. The, the beat where his, his friend, whose name, for some reason, I can't recall right now, but the beat where his friend comes in and he immediately stops crying, he immediately stops the, the manipulative charade. I mean, that really speaks to who this, this odious little kid is. Um, so, so we have all of that, and of course we see the oppression that Harry suffers under. We see that the Dursleys' fear of magic in their household is not entirely unfounded, because Harry has been subconsciously manifesting magic through the years. We, we get some third-person accounts of that. Um, but we don't reach, honestly, another key moment until we make it to the zoo. Except for one thing, and this only struck me again today. We have the moment where Harry tells... Uh, Vernon, that he dreamed of the flying motorcycle. And we have Vernon turning to Harry, red-faced and screaming, motorcycles don't fly. Is that overly specific? Does that strike you as being like a little too pointed? That I fear that if Harry, and I, we're told in the text that if Harry kind of expresses any kind of unconventional thought or any kind of reference to, you know, dreams or imagination, certainly to magic, that it's quashed immediately. But the force and the specificity with which Vernon replies to this, this, you know, not entirely 
original notion of a flying motorcycle, something that Harry could have seen on a cartoon or could have, you know, read in a book, that it, it's so forcefully quashed, started kind of triggering all kind of, all kind of tingles at the back of my head, just, just making me think, well, what else has Uncle Vernon seen that he is refusing to consciously accept and express? It's a debate. <laughs> oh, the kid's name is Piers. Thank you, Christina. Piers. Yes, of course. <laughs> he appears and then disappears, hence the name. All right. So we arrive at the snake. Let's switch out to this slide and see what we can do with this. The snake suddenly opened its beady eyes. Slowly, very slowly, it raised its head until its eyes were on a level with Harry's. It winked. Harry stared. Then he looked quickly around to see if anyone was watching. They weren't. He looked back at the snake and winked, too. The snake jerked its head toward Uncle Vernon and Dudley, then raised its eyes to the ceiling. It gave Harry a look that said, quite plainly, I get that all the time. I know, Harry murmured through the glass, though he wasn't sure the snake could hear him. It must be really annoying. The snake nodded vigorously. Where do you come from, anyway? Harry asked. The snake jabbed its tail at a little sign next to the glass. Harry peered at it. Boa constrictor. Brazil. Was it nice there? The boa constrictor jabbed its tail at the sign again, and Harry read on. This specimen was bred in the zoo. Oh, I see. So you've never been to Brazil. Here's the thing. <laughs> I know at least one reader personally who dropped the book at this point. The snake, she said. The snake talks. The snake winks. The snake says, amigo, I'm out. That's it. I'm done. No more. Every book teaches you how to read it. Every book says, when you pick it up implicitly or explicitly, hey, these are the rules of me. I am the kind of book where this happens. Stick with me, kid, and you'll read things like this. I can understand why some readers find the snake difficult. It is, it's a hard left turn into silliness. It feels for the first time like we're inside a Disney movie. Talking animals, particularly sibilant snakes, are more cartoonish than I think we've been led to expect by the book so far. But let's be very clear about what is lacking here, because there's nothing inherently wrong with the snake. Books have talking snakes. It's, it's allowed. The problem here, if there is a problem, is that the book drops the talking, reading, emoting snake on us without necessarily preparing us for it first. Not specifically, I mean, <laughs> I don't need a line in the book that says, and sometimes Harry dreamed that snakes were chatty and literate. Um, <laughs> but, but tonally, this moment wouldn't kick so many adult readers, and, and I'm sure children's, uh, children readers too, it wouldn't kick so many readers out of the book if prior to this moment we had received any indication that this was a magical world in which snakes could sometimes speak Spanish. Or <laughs> Brazil, I guess, so Portuguese, right? Um, 
<laughs> For me, I mean, I don't know. What, what do you guys make of this? For me, I can whistle past this. I can get past this without a care until, until Amigo. That is the thing that trips me up. That specific word trips me up because everything else you can kind of fold into Harry's perception. You know, you can say, well, okay, the snake didn't really wink. Snakes can't wink. You know, they don't have uh, eyelids. It's impossible for a snake to wink. Um, But Harry saw a movement that he, magical as he is, interpreted, that he parsed, (laughs) if you'll forgive that near pun, that he parsed as a wink. You You can do that to a certain point. But when the snake says amigo, for me, that is a bridge too far. Well, what do you guys make of this? Lance says, well, you had a cat that turned into a person within the first dozen pages. Yes, right? But that was a, oh, God, I don't know. I mean, maybe if the cat had talked. <laughs> and Chris says, this is the promise that the book makes. No, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. I think that that if this doesn't knock you out of the book, this absolutely sets the tone for what's coming ahead. Um, and as I said, you know, I, I don't find it terribly difficult. It's that one word. It's that one step too far that, that makes me hesitate every time I read it. It makes me wish fervently that that one line wasn't there. Everything else I can get by. I do understand, though, why some people find this, <laughs> find this alienating. They find this a sudden, as I said, you know, a sudden sharp left turn. What do you guys think on Twitter here? Let me see. Yes. Oh, Melissa says, the snake wasn't the first cartoonish thing to me. The Dursleys felt pretty cartoonish. Yes, no, I can see that. Uh, I guess in a different way, perhaps. Um, Pam says, they speak Portuguese in Brazil, not Spanish. Amigo is totally wrong. Is is it not Amigo in, in Portuguese? Wait, have we been skipping over a whole mistake right here in the book? Does this speak? Does this snake not only speak Portuguese? It speaks bad Portuguese. Wow. <laughs> Lindsay says these whole first chapters kind of threw me for a loop of cartoonishness, but maybe that's because I don't read children's lit. Again, every book teaches you how to read it. Every book makes that promise. It sets that frame. It says, this is the kind of book where stuff like this is going to go down. I don't think that there's an inherent, for example, had you picked up a Narnia novel, the talking snake would have fit perfectly within the magical realm that is created within that book. There are, there are, God, any number of children's books where a talking snake would not be at all out of the ordinary it's really only out of the ordinary here and only alienating to some readers here, I think, because it comes out of nowhere. And I know, too, that there are those who who turn off the movie when we arrive at the snake winking. Is it a weakness in the text? I mean, there's an argument that any time a reader is thrown out of a book, it's because the book is weak. At the same time, your book isn't for everyone. You know, uh, ubiquity, uh, simultaneous and, 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 and singular response from every single reader is, is impossible. So, yeah. Christina says it's Amigo in Portuguese, too. Uh, and Angela brings up the snake was born in London, so it speaks whatever corruption of language its keepers speak. No, maybe this is this is the thing. It, it only raises more questions. This is the problem. <laughs> Bilingual snakes. Okay. <laughs> Kay says the snake only knows what it's seen on TV. Cut him some slack. 
Don't you see a snake that watches TV? That just that just raises more. Okay. No, and I think it's perfectly valid that some of you weren't even, you didn't even notice this as you moved through it. I think it's completely fine. I don't, this is not a, a definitive kind of problem. This is not a crack in the firmament of this book. Um, it is, it is, you know, a kind of a well-observed breaking point, I think, in the text. But you're right. If you get past this, or if you don't even notice it, this is the book teaching you how to read it. This is the book making the promise. This is going to be this kind of world. You're going to deal with talking animals, and they're not all going to talk, but some of them are. And some of them are going to speak Portuguese or bad Spanish or something. <laughs> it's all part of this, you know, assimilation process that we go through. All right, let's keep pushing on. We, uh, Oh, and miles to go before we sleep, and it's already 1030. Let's uh, call up our next slide here as we conclude this chapter. He'd lived with the Dursleys almost 10 years, 10 miserable years, as long as he could remember, ever since he'd been a baby and his parents had died in that car crash. He couldn't remember being in the car when his parents had died. Sometimes, when he strained his memory during long hours in the cupboard, he came up with a strange vision, a blinding flash of green light and a burning pain on his forehead. This, he supposed, was the crash, though he couldn't imagine where all the green light came from. He couldn't remember his parents at all. His aunt and uncle never spoke about them, and of course he was forbidden to ask questions. There were no photographs of them in the house. When he had been younger, Harry had dreamed and dreamed of some unknown relation coming to take him away, but it had never happened. The Dursleys were his only family. Yet sometimes he thought, or maybe hoped, that strangers in the street seemed to know him. Very strange strangers they were, too. A tiny man in a violet top hat had bowed to him once while out shopping with Aunt Petunia and Dudley. After asking, excuse me, after asking Harry furiously if he knew the man, Aunt Petunia had rushed them out of the shop without buying anything. A wild-looking old woman dressed all in green had waved merrily at him once on a bus. A bald man in a very long purple coat had actually shaken his hand in the street the other day and then walked away without a word. The weirdest thing about all these people was the way they seemed to vanish the second Harry tried to get a closer look. At school, Harry had no one. Everybody knew that Dudley's gang hated the odd Harry Potter in his baggy old clothes and broken glasses, and nobody liked to disagree with Dudley's gang. It's a really interesting and powerful end to the chapter, if only because it is powerful in its unconventional approach to this narrative. Because here we have this very personal account, okay? So we have the, the account, Harry can't remember his parents, except that we, with the advantage of our, uh, you know, our textual knowledge, with the advantage of this dramatic irony on our side, we know that he can, he can strive, he can try, he can in these rare moments, recollect something of the event that, that led to his parents' death. We can see that, though he can't. And then we have this moment where he dreams of having another family, where he dreams that he belongs somewhere else, where he dreams that people out there know him, where he has these odd and varied experiences of people recognizing him or of shaking, him in, shaking him by the hand. That's our arc right there. From nothing to vague remembrance to the actual external, you know, manifestation of his his uniquity, his his celebrity, his his legendary status. And then we have that weird little coda tacked on to the end. 
At school, Harry had no one. Everybody knew that Dudley's gang hated the odd Harry Potter in his baggy old clothes and broken glasses, and nobody liked to disagree with Dudley's gang. Not only is nobody liked to disagree fairly weak language, I mean, in as much as it's not emphatic, but this is an odd point. We're talking about Harry's family, his, his, his origins, his destiny, his place in the world. And then we break off from there to say at school, Harry had no one. And of course, what we're doing there is very specifically foreshadowing where we're going. And in that specificity, I think we find the first light. We find the first hope you know, even if you don't know this book, even if you don't know what's coming, even if you've never heard of Hogwarts, and frankly, I've been spoiling all kinds of things through the last hour and a half of this seminar. Even if you don't know what's coming, the specificity of at school, Harry had no one. I don't know. To me, it feels as if we're, we're, we're turning something there. There is, there is a, I don't know, a point of inflection in the text there. That, that opens something, that, that yields something, that illuminates a tiny sliver of, of specific, fragile hope for what comes next. All right. Into chapter three, the bulk of which we only have, let me see here, two slides here in chapter three, because this is something you'll see throughout the span of the seminar. The more that is actually happening, the fewer slides we're going to have, because generally speaking, plot moves quite quickly and is fairly, you know, uh, fairly simple and mechanical in its execution. So we'll talk about the plot. We'll talk about what happens when things are moving more slowly. We'll tend to have more slides and actually dive into the language and the text. That's particularly true with JK Rowling. She generally, um, she generally holds her more thoughtful moments for periods of, of inaction, or at least, you know, periods of, of introspection. So we begin, the bulk of this chapter, as I said, is taken up by the escalating measures that Vernon Dursley takes to try and, and letter-proof his house. Um, letters like this one, in fact. Let's, let's have the slide, because I have the, the letter itself, because why wouldn't I? Um, here we go. Harry picked it up and stared at it, his heart twanging like a giant elastic band. No one ever in his whole life had written to him. Who would? He had no friends, no other relatives. He didn't belong to the library, so he'd never even gotten rude notes asking for his books back. Yet here it was, a letter addressed so plainly there could be no mistake. Mr. H. Potter, the cupboard under the stairs, for Privet Drive, Little Whinging, Surrey. The envelope was thick and heavy, made of yellowish parchment, and the address was written in emerald green ink. There was no stamp. Turning the envelope over, his hand trembling, Harry saw a purple wax seal bearing a coat of arms, a lion, an eagle, a badger, and a snake surrounding a large letter H. Good for Harry, honestly, for being able to differentiate a badger uh, and a tiny wax seal. Good going. Uh, <laughs> obviously, his time at the zoo has paid off very well. 
Um, and there we have it. You know, this is the pivotal moment. This, this is the totem of his transformation. This is, this is the key that will unlock his future. And the fact that it is denied him for so long only adds dramatic tension. It, it, it builds our investment. And also, you know, the, 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 hmm, the in-universe stakes, I guess. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I do want to shine a light on the specificity here. The, the, the address is perfect. It is just perfect. To specifically reference the cupboard under the stairs is beautiful. But then to set this whole thing in the town of Little Whinging, I just adore. <laughs> just incredibly powerful. Um, yes, good. Oh, uh, Nocturne uh, in the YouTube comment said, I always thought it was pronounced like wing. No, no, no. This is, yes, the, the British word whinging, meaning to uh, complain in a churlish and feeble manner, to, to, uh, to, to moan about something <laughs> in, a, in a fundamentally ineffectual and, and kind of um, weak-spirited fashion. No, little whinging is, is perfect for the Dursleys. Let me put it that way. Um, and Ariane asks also there, uh, green writing, green light, green eyes, is green somehow magical? Definitely something that we want to keep an eye on. We want to keep an eye on colors in general, I think, going forward. Um, oh, and Kay Clark on Twitter there says, yes, lots of green and purple. Significant? I, I think at this point we can say yes. <laughs> great, great, great. Okay, good. Let's... Um, Oh, and Nocturne comes back to says, purple seems very wizardy. Of course, purple, particularly in the Western European tradition, is also royal. You know, it, it is an inherently, uh, it is an inherently, <laughs> I don't know, uh, monarchistically representative kind of color. It speaks to power and, and authority, but not of a, you know, temporal or, or, not of a temporal or civil form or function, but something much more profound, something God-given, something innate. Purple is the color of, of, of power there. Um, Christina says the U.S. equivalent is whining, of course. Yeah, it is whining, yes, but, but with a more kind of plaintive quality, perhaps. Uh, Angela says kvetching, yes. <laughs> That's true, too. I think, I think it's, it's somewhere in there, yes. <laughs> Oh, you're all calling out whining. Yes, it, it is. It is whining, but with a more kind of sad sack, uh, or, or with a more specifically sad sack kind of aspect. Yeah, great, great, great. Oh, and Brittany's contrasting, of course, uh, purple and green. Yeah, royalty and the green representative of nature. Yes, we'll 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 definitely dip more into that in the future. Um, let's cancel that slide so I can come back to you and tell you about the rest of the chapter, which is is. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of great, you know? It, it, it feels like we spend a lot of time accomplishing not terribly much, and we're doing it right here at the beginning of the book, and we kind of want things to get moving, but it is important that we're building all the time. We're building. We're escalating the tension and the conflict throughout this chapter. Um, Vernon struggles to deal with this magical interference in resolutely non-magical ways, and his refusal to accept the truth prevents him from being able to do anything about it. Mundane measures are never going to stop these letters, and yet, when he has exhausted his mundane measures, he simply dredges up more, you know? He, he will go to greater and greater lengths. They even, the Dursleys, give Harry the second bedroom there. Um, though, I don't know, I swing back and forth on, on the why. I swing back and forth on, on why they make that decision. 
or, or let me clarify still further. Um, I feel that the Dursleys give the second bedroom to Harry out of fear. Fear of what, though? That, that is where I move backwards and forwards. Um, is it fear of the letters and the authority that is sending these letters? Is it fear of the fragility of their mundane lives? Is it fear of, of karmic retribution? Now they know that someone, the, the, the specificity of the letter to, you know, the cupboard under the stairs, they now know that they are being watched and they voice that very fear uh, within the text of the book. Is it fear that they are now being watched and could be punished for keeping this boy under the stairs for all these years? It, it's... <laughs> On the one hand... I can look at this passage and say that we could stand to compress it. We could stand to move through it a little more swiftly. We don't necessarily need quite so many recitations of, of, of Vernon trying something and failing and the letters finding a way. On the other hand, I feel like it's doing something really interesting thematically. And I feel like it's saying something very important about Vernon Dursley. And I feel like it's saying something very important by extension, therefore, about about adaptability and flexibility and about the willingness and the capacity even to embrace change. The, the power that comes from being able to shift one's own perspective and allow for a certain flexibility in one's own narrative, not just about the world around you, though that is certainly important and that's something Harry is going to slap right bang into next week on the seminar, but also to, to kind of adjust and to understand your shifting place in the world. Well, we'll get to that. Um, finally, though, they, they flee their home, hoping to escape the latters, uh, unable to escape the truth. They arrive at the broken down house on the exposed rock in the middle of the ocean. Um, <laughs> and there really is, there's something here. By the time we get to the end of it, there's something kind of almost, um, I don't know, almost The Shining about this. There's something where Vernon is just teetering on the edge of insanity here as we end up uh, rowing through the storm-tossed sea out to this ridiculous shack out on the very fringes of the world. And if you are a fan, as I am a fan of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, it's a cute little story about a powerful wizard who goes to a wizardy school and unleashes dark magic. She'd probably like it. Um, <laughs> if you are a fan of that book, some of this might speak to you on that because the sea is so very powerful in, in Ursula K. Le Wind's work, particularly in the, the Earthsea stories. Um, I really felt there was a connection there between this sequence and, and the sequence to spoil no spoilers right at the end of Earthsea there. So finally, we arrive here. They, they lock themselves in secure, knowing that there's no way the letters can get to them. They, they go to sleep and Harry has these last moments of consciousness as he counts down toward the very moment of his 11th birthday. This is our final slide for this evening. Let me share this with you. All right. As night fell, the promised storm blew up around them. Spray from the high waves splattered the walls of the hut, and a fierce wind rattled the filthy windows. Aunt Petunia found a few moldy blankets in the second room. Uncle Vernon went off in the... Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Did I lose the stream there for a second? Everything hiccuped. <laughs> And you guys are a couple of minutes behind, of course. Okay. Uh, she, uh, I'm sorry about that. We, we had a small technical thing here. I don't know when that dropped out. Let me start over from the beginning of this slide. <laughs> As night fell, 
The promised storm blew up around them. Spray from the high waves splattered the walls of the hut, and a fierce wind rattled the filthy windows. Aunt Petunia found a few moldy blankets in the second room and made up a bed for Dudley on the moth-eaten sofa. She and Uncle Vernon went off to the lumpy bed next door, and Harry was left to find the softest bit of floor he could, and to curl up under the thinnest, most ragged blanket. The storm raged more and more ferociously as the night went on. Harry couldn't sleep. He shivered and turned over, trying to get comfortable, his stomach rumbling with hunger. Dudley's snores were drowned out by the low rolls of thunder that started near midnight. The lighted dial of Dudley's watch, which was dangling over the edge of the sofa on his fat wrist, told Harry he'd be eleven in ten minutes' time. He lay and watched his birthday tick nearer, wondering if the Dursleys would remember at all, wondering where the letter writer was now. Five minutes to go. Harry heard something creak outside. He hoped the roof wasn't going to fall in, although he might be warmer if it did. Four minutes to go. Maybe the house in Privet Drive would be so full of letters when they got back that he'd be able to steal one somehow. Three minutes to go. Was that the sea, slapping hard on the rock like that? And two minutes to go? What was that funny crunching noise? Was the rock crumbling into the sea? One minute to go and he'd be 11, 30 seconds, 20, 10, 9. Maybe he'd wake Dudley up just to annoy him. Three, two, one, boom. The whole shack shivered, and Harry sat bolt upright, staring at the door. Someone was outside, knocking to come in. <sighs> Powerful stuff. Oh, you guys did lose me? <laughs> okay well I hope you're all back with me and I hope that the recording worked there's always a danger when we're doing these things live um, so this is our conclusion we have here I mean my god thank goodness for definitive countdowns to, to huge transformative moments in one's life huh? how often do you get to watch a clock tick down until your life is forever changed but Harry has exactly that experience here I think that I like the way that we've done this. I like the way that Vernon's pursuit of the mundane world, his desperation to cling to the mundane world and to prevent any transition, <laughs> to prevent any kind of, of adventure from entering his life, has driven him out of the mundane world. His obsession, his you know borderline insanity, honestly, has driven him from Privet Drive, where he would have at least been safe, out here to the fringes of the world, to the very edge of all things, out here to this storm-tossed ocean where the roof may fall and all may die. It's the pursuit of normalcy that has driven him here. And there's something poetic about that, isn't there? We'll get, of course, to this mysterious arrival Oh, good, good, good. It just take up for a few seconds. Great. Glad to hear it. Um, we will get to this mysterious arrival next week. Um, and I think perhaps it makes more sense to talk about the whole transition at that point. Next week, we're going to talk a lot about transitions because we have a lot of transitions to talk about. Um, let's see what we're, uh, what we're pulling up here. Sue says 11 seems an important number. Something happened 11 years ago. Yes, Harry's 11th birthday. Yes, we're getting that mirroring right there. The 11 is very conspicuous when Dumbledore and McGonagall are talking right out there uh, at the beginning. Let me see what else we have. That is Alistair's special podcast microphone. What is my special podcast microphone? Oh, this thing? 
Oh, this thing. Yes. I'm sorry. This keeps creeping into, <laughs> into the frame here. This is my uh, little pop filter so that I can pop, pop, pop at my mic and you guys aren't driven crazy by it. Uh, I do apologize. <laughs> I have a whole thing now. I have a whole system where it's on an armature and it's hanging over my screens. It's kind of a big deal. Um, Chris says the letter sequence has always been one of my favorite parts of Harry Potter. You know what? Mine too. Um, there are definitely arguments that it could be cut. There are definitely arguments to be made that it could be tightened up, that it could be refocused. It, it, it can feel indulgent, but at the same time, it's magical. There's a real whimsy to it. There's a real kind of, of no, whimsy perhaps is, 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 is giving it too short a shrift. There's a, <laughs> I fear I lack the words. Mostly because I don't just want to say magical again. <laughs> there is something otherworldly to it. There is a desperation. And, and I, I'm stunned and staggered and moved by Vernon's desperation, driving him from the safety, the sanctity of his own home, driving him out from that thing that he sought so powerfully to protect and leaving him vulnerable, leaving him caught here in the storm and the darkness and the water between two worlds. And of course, you know, when we're looking at these, these liminal transition of states between real life and fairy stories, you know, <laughs> the sea, storms, <laughs> darkness, these are all, you know, common traits. All right, let me see. <laughs> if Vernon were the protagonist, this is the climax scene of a horror story. Yes. Yes. Yes, Lance is uh, talking in the YouTube chat here. Yes, you're absolutely right. The days don't line up. There is a um, there is a kind of semi-standard explanation which requires some fudging of uh, Professor McGonagall's account um, of of when uh, Voldemort was taken down. Whenever that uh, passed, but yes, you're right. The days don't add up. <laughs> Um, yes, and Nora says the first time in 11 years that Voldemort hasn't been terrorizing the wizard community. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Chris says, well, uh, yes, today I'm inspired to write a drabble about the wizard responsible for sending the letters to Hogwarts students that year. Whoever sends the letter, they're clever with magic, but don't really understand muggles. Yeah, there's something kind of there's something wonderfully unstoppable about it, isn't there? There's something, there's something um, truly magical in the sense of, of, of you know, magic by commission. Um, th there's something almost uh, sorcerer's apprentice about it. You know, you, you start this spell going and this spell will do the thing that it is supposed to do and will brook no interference and cannot be conquered and cannot be reasoned with. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Jennifer says, this is the climax of Vernon Dursley's Perfectly Ordinary Tuesday. Oh, it turned out to be an ironic title. How unfortunate for Vernon. <laughs> All right. Great. Yes. Yeah, I'm afraid, Lance, there, there isn't a satisfactory answer to the date thing. Um, <laughs> mistakes are made, I guess. Um, 
And yes, Angela pulls up uh, here in the YouTube chat the notion of of destiny and the fact that Harry's destiny, embodied here by Invitation Lighters to Hogwarts, will not be denied. It cannot be stopped. You cannot refuse the call. And for those of you who are adherents of the hero's journey structure of storytelling, uh, for those of you who are fans, uh, if not of Joseph Campbell, then at the very least of Christopher Vogler, uh, who wrote The Writer's Journey, then you will absolutely recognize this. This is the call. The call comes a-knocking, and the call knows where you live, with a great deal of specificity, actually. In fact, the uh, the address on the letter in the next chapter is one of my favorite things. It's one of just my favorite things. It, it so perfectly illustrates J.K. Rowling's sense of playfulness and that gorgeous specificity, the respect that she gives to the work and to the world. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that next week, of course. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're arguing over dates. Um, yeah. Uh, Nocturne says, yes, though who is calling him? That is the question. That, too, speaks to this question, doesn't it? Of, of of whose story this is and what story it is exactly. You know, is this the story of Harry's coming of age? Is this simply, you know, a a classic um, British boarding school adventure story where, where our, our protagonist learns a little something and grows a little older and moves on to his next adventure? Or are we already in the frame of something larger? Are we already seeing the, the the veiled shape of the landscape before us? And it is not, you know, an easy, uh, you know, readily traversable path. It is something far grander, far more epic. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, exactly. Uh, I Heart Weasley's in the YouTube chat is, is asking the question, how many students are at Hogwarts? 200 or 1,000? Yes. Well, we'll try and, and figure that out too. Yeah, and we, we've got this idea being floated, too, here in Twitter chat that, that the letters are, are, in fact, a punishment for the way Harry was treated, which would suggest that if the Dursleys recognize that, they that could account for them giving them uh, giving Harry Dudley's... My God, so many proper nouns. It would account for the Dursleys giving Harry Dudley's second bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Oh, we're asking all kinds of questions, all kinds of questions here in chat that, that we're not prepared to answer just yet. But uh, <laughs> we will get to all of those. Guys, we are running late. It is almost time for me to wrap up. If you have any terribly urgent questions, then by all means, type them in now. In the meantime, let me share with you this. Not that. That is the last slide. Let us move on to our concluding slide where I tell you that next week's session will be entitled Another World. We will be looking at, of course, the unfolding story as we proceed, but also looking at points of transition, looking at the passages that lead us from world to world and the way that they are both represented and navigated. Uh, we'll be covering next time chapters four and five. Oh, Lindsay asks on Twitter, are we going to get into all the Zodiac components, thinking about colors too? Yeah, there is a great deal of purposeful symbolism. Um, I'm, I'm generally skeptical of kind of, <laughs> I'm generally skeptical in any book of, of simply latching onto colors, numbers, zodiacs, birthdays, that kind of thing, and, and, and analyzing the hell out of them, just trying to get any ounce of meaning that we can. But in this book, yes, it seems, it seems purposeful. It seems forceful. Um, 
<laughs> Kay asks, what if there was a bathroom in the cupboard? I'm inclined to think not, Kay. Um, I would imagine not. <laughs> good, good, good. Ooh, Melissa says, is slightly menacing whimsy a thing? Because that's what the letter sequence feels like to me. Funny, but increasingly scary for Vernon. Yeah, I, that's the part of it that makes me feel that it's not entirely whimsical, right? It, it's this idea that, no, there is a real kind of, not a threat, perhaps, not even a malice, but an unstoppability. He is being confronted with a world that he is ill-equipped to face, you know, uh, which he demonstrates throughout the passage of this chapter. He cannot face, he cannot engage with. Yeah. All right, guys, let's wrap that up. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. I will see you all again next week. By all means, email me, stop by the forum. You can hashtag any tweets that you have through the course of the week with SWDMP. If you were coming to this late, you can find this on YouTube. You can, of course, find this in the podcast feed on iTunes. You can find all the information you could possibly need on storywonk.com. So, so stop by there and find everything you need to find about Dear Mr. Potter and all our many other podcasts. Once again, thank you to our patrons for making this all possible possible. If you would like to support Storywonk, if you would like to help me do this more often, then you can stop by patreon.com slash Storywonk to make that happen. Thank you so much, guys, for, for hanging out tonight. And we will be back next week with more. I'll see you then. <laughs>